This talk is brought to you by iBiology.org, and this audio was taken from a video available on our website. My name is David Sabatini. I'm at the Whitehead Institute, as well as the MIT Department of Biology, and I'm also affiliated with the Howard Hughes Medical Institute and the Koch and Broad Institutes. And through a series of three lectures, I'm going to introduce to you mTOR and the regulation of growth. We now appreciate that mTOR, which is a very large protein kinase, and the pathway that it anchors, is one of the central regulators of growth in animals. Growth is the process that we define as the accumulation of mass by cells and organisms by using nutrients from their environment and thus increasing in size. While we've known that growth is a regulated process for many decades, the mechanisms that regulate growth were really not well understood until some of the work that I'll describe to you today. In the first lecture, which will be quite historical in nature, I'm going to talk about the discovery of mTOR, as well as two mTOR-containing complexes that we call mTORC1 and mTORC2, mTOR complex 1 and 2, in which mTOR participates and how they regulate growth. In the second lecture, I'm going to focus in on mTOR complex 1, or mTORC1, and its regulation by nutrients. We now appreciate that nutrients are the main regulators of this complex, which really makes sense considering that growth is the process of using nutrients to make mass. And this story will also introduce the lysosome as an important signaling organelle in this pathway. The third talk will actually go downstream of mTORC1 and will deal with the regulation of ribophagy. Ribophagy is the process that we can define as the breakdown of ribosomes, particularly by the lysosomal system. We appreciate that ribosomes contain a large fraction of the amino acids and nucleotides within a mammalian cell, and therefore their breakdown recycles these components. And I'll talk about the importance of that in the response to starvation. So as I mentioned, we appreciate now that the mTOR pathway is one of the main regulators of growth. And what we think about this pathway is that it senses two different types of states at the organismal level. The fasting state, when an animal doesn't have enough nutrients, or the fed state, when nutrients are plenty. And it regulates many processes at the cell and organismal level that either are pro-anabolism, that is the use of nutrients to create mass, or pro-catabolism, the breakdown of mass to liberate nutrients. And I'll talk a little bit more about this in, in a couple of slides. We appreciate the system regulates size at multiple different levels, at the, regulation, at, the, at the level of cell size, which I'll show you some data on, also at the level of organ size, which also I'll show you some information on, and increasingly at the level of the body size, where we don't have too much information, but this is clearly a question for future study. Now, insight into the system comes from a very interesting direction. And that is the study of a small molecule, a natural small molecule called rapamycin. And you can see its, its structure right here. I would argue that this is one of the more interesting small molecules out there, because not only has it had many different medical uses, and you can see some of them here in immunosuppression, in cardiology, and preventing restenosis of coronary vessels, and increasingly in cancer, where we're starting to have now biomarkers for predicting the efficacy of rapamycin. So not only has it had these interesting clinical uses, but it's also led to our molecular understanding of the growth of growth control, namely the discovery of this kinase called mTOR. Now, rapamycin has also an interesting historical perspective to it. Its name comes from the place where it was discovered, which is the island called Rapa Nui, otherwise known as Easter Island. This island is in the South Pacific, as you can see that little star on, 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 the, on, the, on the map there. And this is the, the, the island that's famous for the presence of these very large statues whose cultural significance we don't quite understand, and we certainly don't understand how exactly they were made and moved, because they're very large in size. I've always wanted to go to Easter Island, and about two years ago I was fortunate to do so. It's very far. It takes about 36 hours to get there from, from Boston. And one of the things that I wanted to find when I went there was this. This plaque was placed at the site by the company Wyeth Iris that discovered rapamycin, at the site where they collected the soil sample from which bacteria were isolated 
and from which bacteria was then isolated rapamycin. This is a plaque commemorating uh, this, this finding. I, I convinced a couple of friends to trek up to this place. It turns out it's about a three-hour trek up an extinct uh, volcano. And unfortunately, when we got there, this is what we found. You can see that the plaque is actually now gone. It turns out that it was stolen. It was thought to be a little bit too imperialistic in its content. And so one of the things that we hope to do is to go back and put a plaque that's a little more inclusive of actually the local people that participated in, uh, in the discovery of rapamycin. And in fact, rapamycin is a very famous molecule on, on the island. Most of the people you talk to have, have heard of rapamycin. So while rapamycin has been in the clinical and the basic science sphere for a number of decades now, what's really taken it out of that world and more into the lay press world and even to the pop culture world is the finding now maybe more than a decade ago that rapamycin prolongs lifespan in a number of different organisms, most notably in mammals, in mice, where depending on the experiment and the gender of the animals, you can get an increase in lifespan from 15 to 25 percent, so quite a significant effect, and also an increase in what we call health span, so that the overall health of the animal. This has led to many articles in the lay press, such as this one from Bloomberg Magazine, where you can see that this uh, lady is celebrating putatively her 173rd birthday, uh, perhaps after taking a, a version of rapamycin made by Novartis, as is indicated in the corner here. And while one can easily poke fun of these potential uses of rapamycin, it is likely true that molecules like it will be used in the future to rejuvenate particular organ systems. In particular, there's already evidence that giving rapamycin to elderly people will rejuvenate the immune system, which can have some very beneficial effects on health span. So rapamycin has now gotten into sort of the lay press, and more recently it's even gotten into the pop culture world. And here's a, a rap song that actually has rapamycin in its title. And you can see some of the lines here where they, they talk about rapamycin, making sure we live forever rappers who take in rapamycin. For me, it's been quite interesting to see the evolution of rapamycin, a very esoteric molecule when we first started working on it, to one where I actually sometimes, maybe 25% of the time now, if I go to a cocktail party, someone will actually have read some article about rapamycin, so giving me a little bit more to, to talk about. Now, given these interesting effects of rapamycin in the medical sphere, more recently in the anti-aging sphere, you can imagine that there was a lot of interest in understanding how this drug worked. And what I mean by that is that you'd want to know what target it had inside a cell. And we all assumed it was a protein target, and as you'll see, it is a protein target. So you'd really like to know what the target of rapamycin is, because that would then give you a molecular handle, understanding how this molecule worked, and perhaps making better versions of rapamycin, and really understanding the basic biology, which has been our focus here. People often ask me, well, how did you get involved with rapamycin, and how did that eventually lead to the discovery of this protein that we now call, now call mTOR? For me, the story begins as an MD-PhD student in the early 1990s, and I was in the lab of this gentleman here, Solomon Snyder. He was the chair of neuroscience at Johns Hopkins Medical School. And he's a person who has a very broad range of interests. He was trained as a psychiatrist, he's a neuroscientist, he's a pharmacologist, he's quite fascinated with potent uh, molecules. And when I went to talk to him, he gave me a very broad range of things that I could work on and really gave me freedom to explore my own projects, which turned out to be very critical for me because it allowed me to establish my own research interests quite early in his lab. And this is work that I've continued uh, to this day. 50% of my lab still works on the pathway that I started working on as a graduate student. When you looked at Saul's lab, though, it was quite clear that there was a theme to the lab. And that was that Saul liked to use small molecules, whether they were synthetic ones, as certain versions of opiates or endogenous molecules, such as IP3, and use them to probe biology, particularly neuro 
biology. And these are examples of a couple of molecules that he used to make fundamental discoveries, and there are really dozens more that one could put into this category. Salt was really one of the first chemical biologists, I would say, although people did not use that, that term back then very much. At the time I joined his lab, the lab was using this molecule here called FK506. This is one of the early immunosuppressants. The early 90s was a time where people really were discovering the power of immunosuppression for organ transplantation. There's a lot of excitement in molecules such as this. And the lab was putting it onto neurons and studying the effects it had on neurons. Very soon before I arrived in the lab, Stuart Schreiber's lab had made a really seminal discovery on how FK506 worked, discovering what we now call a gain-of-function mechanism for this drug, which is quite unique. There are not many molecules that act through this mechanism. And what happens is that FK506 binds to a small protein called FKBB12 or FKBP in this diagram, and this drug receptor complex now has a new property that neither the protein nor the drug by itself has, and that is to go and interact with the phosphatase called calcineurin and inhibit this phosphatase. And this is how this drug has its pharmacological actions. So people were using in Saul's lab FK506. They needed a control molecule though, and the control molecule they were using was this molecule here, rapamycin, which you saw before. And the reason they were using rapamycin is that it doesn't inhibit calcineurin, yet it has some structural similarities. You can see about half the molecule is similar, the, the second half is much less so. Now, we were fortunate to have rapamycin because you couldn't buy it at the time. And the way we had gotten it is that Saul Snyder had written this gentleman here, Seren Segal, at Wyeth Iris. This was the company that discovered rapamycin. And Dr. Segal is really the father of rapamycin, shepherding it from its discovery in the 1970s through its clinical development in the 90s and the early 2000s. Sadly, he passed away in 2003, really before the full power of rapamycin and, and, and all that would come out of studying it was completely appreciated. So he had given us a generous amount of rapamycin, but more importantly for me, he had sent us a little notebook that said rapamycin bibliography. And in this notebook was every abstract that had been published for rapamycin and the very few papers that had come out at that time. I was an MD-PhD student. I was interested in medicine at the time. All of these abstracts, the majority had some medical connection, immunosuppression, anti-cancer uses, antifungal uses. It became clear to me that this was an interesting molecule. Before This was before we knew about its aging effects. It was a very interesting molecule, and in many ways, I thought, more interesting than FK506. And yet, we didn't know how it worked. So what I decided to do was, well, let's try to figure that out. Let's try to figure out how rapamycin works. Now, we had a saying in Saul's lab at the time that you couldn't identify something, you couldn't find, for example, the rapamycin target without first proving that it existed. Okay, and in this case, we assumed it was a protein, so you need to exist, you need to prove that there was actually a protein target. The way I went about doing this is explained on this slide. I took FKBB12. This is the same protein that binds FK506. There's an entire family of these FKBPs, and I tried many of them in this experiment. However, the only one that worked is FKB12. And what I did is I radio-labeled it as indicated by that radiation sign on top of that protein. And then I prepared lysates from rat brain. We ground up the brain, prepared lysates, and I added this radioactive protein to them. And then what I did is I either added rapamycin in these plus signs at two different concentrations or a vehicle for the drug which are the minus signs. And then the key thing that I did is I added a chemical crosslinker. So a chemical crosslinker is a molecule that will link two proteins together covalently if those proteins are close enough. And the reasoning here was that if rapamycin induced FKBB12 to bind to a protein, I can now link them together. And because FKBB12 is small, it's only 12 kilodaltons as indicated by the 12, I would see a shift in its molecular weight when I ran it on a gel. And indeed, you can see in the presence, but not the absence, 
of rapamycin, there are two bands that appear. One that I named RAFT1 for rapamycin FKBG target 1. We now know that this band represents the protein that today we call mTOR. And there was another band that I call RAFT2. Now, this experiment was important because it showed us that there was a protein target for this drug. Second, it told us that this protein existed in a complex because I could never separate RAF2 from RAF1. It was very clear that they were always traveling together. And you'll see that protein complexes make an appearance later on. Now, through a series of purification steps, I ended with this final step here. This is an affinity-based purification where I immobilized FKBP on beads and then in the presence of rapamycin, I could see the specific appearance of this band on this gel, which is what mTOR, what turns out to be mTOR. We purified enough of it, we sequenced it, which in those days was not so easy, it was a big protein, and eventually we cloned its cDNA. And around the same time, Stuart Schreiber's lab in this Brown et al. paper and Bob Abraham's lab in the Sabres et al. paper that I'm citing here did the same thing. They also discovered this protein out of human or, uh, I think, mouse uh, tissues. So all the labs that identified mTOR came to the same conclusion. That is that rapamycin binds to FKBB12, making a drug receptor complex that it interacts with mTOR and suppresses its function. From sequence analysis, it was clear that mTOR had a kinase domain, as indicated by these red boxes here. And both Bob Abraham's group, as well as Stuart Schreiber's group, went on to show that mTOR indeed was a protein kinase. In addition, it was clear there was homologs in other species, most notably in yeast, where there are two genes, TOR1 and TOR2. In fact, most fungi have two TOR genes. And these had been identified about a year earlier by Mike Hall's lab and George Levy's lab in screens for rapamycin resistance, where mutations, specific mutations in these genes gave resistance to this drug. And so both genetic studies in yeast and biochemical studies in mammalian systems led to what we now know as the target of rapamycin, or mTOR, in mammalian systems, which we now know is the relevant pharmacological target of this drug. This was an inflection point in the field because it allowed now the molecular biological investigation of how rapamycin acted, and lots of the things that came after, and which I'll describe afterwards, really stem from the initial discovery of, of the mTOR gene. It was also clear that mTOR is present in other species, most notably in Drosophila, where there's been lots of interesting work at the organismal level using mutations in the Drosophila TOR gene. Now, while we now had a target for rapamycin, and we knew rapamycin did many interesting things, it was unclear how mTOR did these things. How did we explain, for example, its immunosuppressive effects? How eventually would we explain its anti-aging effects? Through the efforts of many labs working in many different organisms, we arrived at about this version of the mTOR pathway in 2002 where mTOR, this large protein kinase, was at the center of what already looked to us to be a complicated system. There were many downstream outputs. You can see some of them here. We could group them either in pro-anabolism processes, like the biogenesis of ribosomes. Ribosomes account for a large fraction of the mass of a cell. Or pro-catabolism pathways, such as autophagy, where the cell auto-eats and breaks down mass to liberate nutrients and energy sources. Upstream, the situation was even more complicated. Somehow, mTOR seemed to sense anything you would do to a cell. All kinds of nutrients, such as amino acids and glucose, all kinds of growth factors, energy sources, oxygen levels, DNA damage, osmotic stress, anything you do to the cell, mTOR somehow had an antenna and detected it. This told us that the cell cares a lot about Reagan and this pathway. It also, though, revealed what I think is an interesting biological problem. It suggested there must be many, many sensors for all of these upstream signals, and that somehow those outputs have to be integrated to give a coherent signal to mTOR, which then regulates growth and regulates cell size. 
In my second lecture, I'm going to focus on how it senses nutrients and how the sensing of nutrients is integrated with the sensing of growth factors. And this is where the lysosome will make an important appearance. Now, if you take that complicated pathway and you abstract out and say, okay, what is this system trying to tell us? I think it's trying to tell us something relatively simple, actually. It tells us that the mTOR growth pathway really cares about two classes of upstream signals. One are local nutrient levels, and this makes a lot of sense. No cell should try to grow increases in mass if it doesn't have nutrients, right? It would be a silly thing to do. But in a multicellular organism, there's a second level of control, and those are controls that come from hormonal signals, insulin being the most famous of those. And these are specialized signals sent from one tissue to the rest of the body to tell the body, look, something specific is happening that matters. In the case of insulin, the signal is telling the body that there's glucose. And so therefore, the mTOR growth pathway has to integrate nutrient levels and growth signals. And again, I'll focus on, in the second lecture on how it does that. We could simplify this diagram even to one step further and say that growth is the process whereby a small cell takes nutrients from its environment, generates mass, and increases in size. And what a regulatory pathway like the mTOR pathway does is regulate the reuse of those nutrients if they're available, or regulate the production of those nutrients if nutrients are not available. Now, growth, as you might imagine, is important for a cell to divide. If you don't double all your mass, it's hard to imagine how many cell divisions you could actually accomplish. And indeed, we had known for a very long period before the discovery of mTOR in mammalian systems or of the TOR genes in yeast that rapamycin had antiproliferative effects. In fact, the old papers that Seren Segal's bibliography showed to me were mostly about the antiproliferative effects. Of this molecule. So why do we then focus now on this growth side, the, the first part of this uh, diagram, rather than this division side, which would be regulated by the cell cycle machinery? Well, some of these insights came out early on from the use of rapamycin in immune cells, in mammalian immune cells. It was clear that it had anti-anabolic effects, particularly in inhibiting protein synthesis and particularly in inhibiting the synthesis of ribosomes. There was a particularly important paper from Erwin, Erwin Gelfand, where using a very special system, I think the key was the use of this system, he took naive T cells, which are very small, and he could stimulate them and watch them grow in size and eventually divide, and he added rapamycin. And what he determined was that rapamycin was inhibiting that growth phase and only secondarily affecting the division of the cells. And he concluded that this was a growth regulator, rapamycin, rather than a cell division regulator. Mike Hall did very similar type of experiments in yeast, in actively growing yeast. And the distinction that one could do there is one could genetically inhibit the TOR gene with the temperature sensitive and also show that, like rapamycin, it had anti-growth effects. Oddly, in yeast, rapamycin doesn't seem to shrink cells very much. It's unclear exactly why that's the case. While mammalian systems, from an experiment that, that we did in our lab using a human B-cell line, you can see this dramatic shrinking effect of rapamycin. So on the left, we have the rapamycin-treated cells, and on the right, the vehicle-treated cells. You could say, well, David, this shows that it's a growth regulator. You have small cells versus large cells. That's not quite the case, because I could argue, well, the small cells are small because they've been arrested in the early phase of the cell cycle, in the G1 phase of the cell cycle, where small cells are normally small. This is not the case, though. And the way we can know this is that we can look at the entire cell size distribution of all of the cells in this culture. And if you do this, you can see that the rapamycin-treated ones, in red here, are shifted completely to the left versus the control in blue. That means that at every cell cycle phase in this culture, the rapamycin-treated cells are smaller. If this was simply an arrest in G1, what you would have is an overlap between the left bound of the blue and the red curve, which we don't, and then you would have a narrower red curve. 
So we could easily now show these really clear growth effects that have been noted earlier. We can also look at the effects of growth in vivo. So for example, you can give rapamycin to a pregnant mouse and you obtain a smaller embryo. Here the defect in size is caused by both a cell size defect and a cell number defect. And we now appreciate there's a number of interesting physiology which is regulated at the level of cell size in which in many cases mTOR plays an important role. For example, the increase that we get in liver size upon feeding a fasted animal is a liver size, is a liver cell phenomenon. The increase in heart size that we get in athletes, in this case modeled in a mouse that's been forced to run, this is also a cell size phenomenon. And in the brain, where you have this amazing differentiation of neurons from what looks like a cell like any other to this arborization, where it's estimated that only about 1% of the mass of this cell is actually in the cell body, and the rest is in the tree. So this is also a massive process of cell growth. Incidentally, when I, when I purified mTOR, I purified it out of the brain, and when I went back and stained by immunohistochemistry where mTOR was in the brain, it was most highest in these Purkinje cells in the cerebellum, although I never went back to try to figure out what it was doing there. So these are physiologically normal physiology where cell growth plays a role. There's also disease physiology where cell growth plays a role. Again, mTOR is connected to many of these. Paradoxically, many forms of heart failure also increase cell size and heart size. We now know of many neurological diseases where there are uh, increases in neuronal size. I picked this one because this one's actually caused by mutations in mTOR itself, hyperactivating mutations. It's called focal cortical dysplasia. And there are diseases where they're characterized not by an increase in cell size, but rather a decrease in cell size. So this is a form of diabetes where the beta cells in the pancreas, you're looking here at the eyelids inside the pancreas, these cells are too small, and they can't make enough insulin to support glucose homeostasis in the person, and therefore they have diabetes. Now, at this point in the story, we knew mTOR mattered, we knew it was the, the target of rapamycin, and yet, there was a lot of things that we couldn't get quite to work. So, for example, we'd already started to identify some of the downstream effectors of mTOR. For example, this S6 kinase, one of the earliest downstream effectors of it. Yet, we couldn't phosphorylate them in vitro. Something was missing. In addition, I showed you that very early experiment in where you could cross-link FKP to more than one band. And so, we knew that mTOR was part of a complex. And when I started my lab at the White Institute, really what I focused on was to identify these interacting proteins and to define what now became mTOR1 and mTOR2. But I banged my head, and the lab banged its head against the wall for many years. We were completely unsuccessful. And we would do experiments such as the one shown in the next slide, where we would develop an mTOR antibody. We would then radiolabel cells by feeding them radioactive amino acids. And then we would immunoprecipitate mTOR, and we'd obtain the large mTOR band and all these series of other bands on this gel. And we would be excited, but we'd go and we'd sequence them, and they'd all turn out to be breakdown products of mTOR or contaminants. And so we were very disappointed. And this happened over and over. We kept making new mTOR antibodies. At one point, we had the realization that perhaps there were mTOR-containing complexes, but they were unstable. And so then when we were breaking the cell, the complexes broke apart. And here again, a crosslinker saved us. Early on in finding the original mTOR, it saved us. And here a crosslinker did as well. In this case, it's a reversal crosslinker. That is, we can link proteins together, but then when we run a gel, as is shown here, that crosslink is broken. Okay? And so all we did in this experiment is add that crosslink when we lysed the cell. This crosslinker when we added it, it lysed the cells. This crosslinker in this case is called DSP, and you can now see the appearance of a new band at 150 kilolones, which at the time we called P150. 
We knew this interaction was unstable because if we simply waited 30 minutes before adding the crosslinker, this band disappeared, suggesting the complex had fallen apart. So we went on to purify this protein, identify it as a protein we eventually named Raptor, and Raptor is really a defining component of the complex we call mTORC1, and we now know that this is really the main growth regulator and really accounts likely for most of the interesting effects of rapamycin. This experiment though, was very important for us as a lab because it eventually allowed us to identify conditions in which these complexes were stable. We didn't need a crosslinker, And it turned out to be rather silly. It turned out to be just the poor choice of an early detergent. A very commonly used detergent breaks these complexes apart, while more esoteric detergents do not. And so we just switched that, everything worked. And that led to the discovery of many new proteins that bind these complexes, and really the proteins which I'll talk about in, in my second lecture, which are involved in nutrient sensing. We now know that there are two complexes. Raptor defines mTORC1, as is shown here. That little band on that gel from, from way when I was a graduate student that I called RAF2 that I could never purify as a graduate student turned out to be this protein, LST8, which is shown here. And we also know there's a second complex called mTOR complex 2 or mTORC2, which is defined by a different protein that we named Richter. So there's Richter that defines mTORC2 and Raptor that defines mTORC1, and they seem to bind in a mutually exclusive way, and they seem to determine whether mTOR becomes mTORC1 or mTORC2. When we first identified mTORC2, we could show that FKB rapamycin couldn't bind to it, and therefore it couldn't inhibit its kinase activity, and therefore we declared that it was rapamycin resistant, it was rapamycin insensitive. As you'll see, this turns out not to be completely correct. We know that these two complexes act in parallel, in a, a uh, act in parallel, and have different upstream signals and different downstream effectors. To my mind, mTORC2 is the more pedestrian of these because it seems to really be part of sort of more traditional growth factor pathways. It's clearly downstream of insulin. Its main effector is a well-known kinase called the AKT kinase, which is involved in glucose and lipid homeostasis. You could really say that mTORC2 is part of the insulin signaling pathway, and indeed perturbation of mTORC2 in vivo gives phenotypes very much like perturbations of the insulin signaling pathway. To me, and certainly to our lab, mTORC1 has been more interesting for a number of reasons. So it turns out to regulate many, many processes, even more than the ones I had in that old slide. For example, we now know it regulates lipid and nucleotide synthesis, as well as the biogenesis of many organelles, including lysosomes. And it continues to sense many, many things upstream which are indicated on this diagram, which again will be the focus of my of my uh, second uh, lecture. Now, the story started with rapamycin. As you can see here, I'm indicating that FKB rapamycin inhibits this complex. It started, though, to become more complicated. Rapamycin itself became much more complicated from that simplistic view that it was an inhibitor of mTORC1. It turns out that rapamycin, when given chronically, as you would in a patient, inhibits the assembly of mTORC2. So it can't bind to it once mTORC2 is assembled, but it can prevent its assembly. So chronic rapamycin will also inhibit mTORC2. There's been lots of efforts now to try to develop molecules that are specific for mTORC1. In addition, rapamycin had more peculiarities, because it turned out that it wasn't fully inhibiting mTORC1. It was a partial inhibitor. It was an allosteric inhibitor. And indeed, many of the processes listed here are resistant to rapamycin. Much of mTORC1 biology was actually silent to us. It was, it was secret to us because rapamycin wasn't perturbing it. This led to the development of a second generation uh, mTOR inhibitors. The one that we developed with Nathaniel Gray at Dana-Farber was really one of the early ones that targets the ATB binding site of mTOR. And so it completely inhibits all the kinase-dependent activities of both of these complexes.
What we lack as a field, and many labs are trying to, to accomplish now, are specific and complete inhibitors that target each of these distinctly. We still don't have that tool available to us. We have to use genetics. And indeed, using genetics, many labs have gone in and knocked out specific components of mTORC1 or specific components of mTORC2 in mice and started to understand their physiology. We've done some of the work around mTORC1, and we've used Raptor uh, to look at its uh, function specifically. And very gratifyingly, we can show that it has many of the same growth defects when you knock out mTORC1 as what rapamycin causes. And here, what you're looking at is either a normal liver on the left or a liver where we've knocked out mTORC1 by deleting Raptor just in the liver, and you can see the pathway is off and the liver is smaller. And this is a cell size defect, because if we go in and trace hepatocytes in the liver, you can see the hepatocytes in the rapamycin treated cell are clearly smaller, and of course, this can be quantitated. Now, what's quite interesting is you take these animals, the wild-type animal, or the one where we've deleted mTORC1 in the liver, and you fast them for 48 hours. This is about as much as you can fast a mouse before it gets very sick and dies. The one on the left here, the wild-type one, will shrink 40%. The mTORC1 deleted one won't shrink at all. And what this is telling us is that this is one of the main systems for tying, in this case, liver size to the nutritional state of the organism, whether it's fasted or fed. And indeed, that is what we think mTORC1's main function is, to detect the fasted state or the fed state, so the nutrient replete or the nutrient depleted state. And to, their, and to thereby regulate physiology at the cell and organismal level, either pro-anabolism, when nutrients are there, or pro-catabolism, when nutrients are not there. I think this helps explain why mTORC1 is involved in so many different physiological processes. It's very common to see papers saying mTORC1 does this, mTORC1 does that. It, it seemingly does everything sometime derided for that. And I think the reason is that if you're an organism, there's almost no physiology that shouldn't be tied to whether you're in the fasted and fed state. This is not something we tend to think about much now, because if anything, we tend to be in the overfed state. Human beings rarely, rarely really go into a fast. Even an overnight lack of food is not a true fast. And so I think this is why it's connected to so many pathways, because in our evolutionary history, certainly for most animals out there, Lack of food and scarcity of food is likely the norm versus food overabundance. You also appreciate now from both genetic studies and studies using different diets that there's an optimal level of mTORC1 activity for organ and organismal health. Too much, as represented by some of these mutations, these genetic mutations, or by diets that are very calorie-rich, such as high-fi diet, or too little mTORC1 activity, for example, represented by the loss of mTORC1 itself, by uh, raptor deletion, or by super-starvation diets, really complete fasts, are both deleterious. In fact, in some cases, they give very similar phenotypes in the muscle, is a good example. So the optimal amount is probably represented by diets in which they're a little bit restricted versus our normal Western diets, what we'd call a calorically restricted diet. And we've known for many decades that these calorically restricted diets have improved, cause improvements in health, certainly in lifespan and a health span. And in this kind of model, we put rapamycin a little bit to the left of that. Rapamycin maybe is a little bit too much inhibition for long-term use. And indeed, people are trying to develop different kinds of mTORC1 inhibitors that may not have some of the deleterious effects of rapamycin. There's a tremendous amount of interest in understanding how mTORC1 impacts the aging process and how its regulation by rapamycin, which we know acts through mTORC1, and how caloric restriction, which is a lot of evidence, also acts through mTORC1, how they impact the aging process. And there's a couple of schools of thoughts on this. One is that the main output is its regulation of autophagy, 
So inhibition of mTORC1, which is normally suppressing autophagy, would allow autophagy to happen. And this is conceptually quite appealing to people because when you do autophagy, you break things down and therefore you'd have to make new versions of them. And that seems to us as something that would be rejuvenating. In addition, impacts on stem cells are also very appealing because these are the cells that would be sort of allowing the rejuvenation of tissues and the regeneration of tissues. And also impacts on translation. So these are the different schools of thought in terms of how mTORC1 perturbations impact the aging process. I tend to think about this in a slightly different way. I think I ask myself, why is it that this pathway in so many organisms has impacts on aging? Well, relatively few pathways do. There's really no other pathway that has these sort of universal impacts on lifespan. And to me, the defining feature of this pathway is it regulates so many things. It doesn't have a restricted thing, set of things that it regulates. And so when I think about either preventing the aging of a cell or even more the rejuvenation of a cell, many things have to be impacted. It's the, the way I analogize is thinking about a building. And if you wanted to rejuvenate a building, you would need carpenters and electricians and plumbers. You need tons of different skills to do that. I think the same thing has to go on at the level of the cell. And in the case of a building, you'd have a general contractor. They would coordinate all these processes, but the general contractor caused lots of things to happen. That's how I see mTORC1, as the general contractor of the cell, and through one intervention, then you have many impacts. And that's what makes it unique. Not that it regulates a number of different processes, but that it regulates so many different processes. So thank you very much for your attention. I think it's important to acknowledge some of the early people that, that did some of this uh, work in the lab. And the first level here, there's Doss Arbosov and Do Hyun Kim, who discovered mTORC2 and mTORC1. And in the second level, there are people who did some of the early in vivo work, such as Dave Gurdon and Shamit Sengupta. And then a number of students, Shauna, Carson, Yasmin, and Tim, who did some of the early work in defining some of the other components of these pathways. And you can see our funding sources that we've been fortunate to have for, for, for a number of years, as well as Paul Temps, who did a lot of the early mass spectrometry for us in defining the components of this system. And thank you very much for the opportunity to give this lecture and for your attention. Visit us at iBiology.org for more free talks from the world's top scientists. Funding is provided by the National Science Foundation and the National Institute of General Medical Sciences.